Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. The Gilded Age was all about an extravagant show of, well, just about everything, from the bows on your dress, the rubies and emeralds at your ears, and the sculptures on the facade of your mansion. The idea was to show off your wealth and arguably raise the level of your social power with displays of conspicuous consumption. The dining tables and the kitchens of those gilded gastronomes were one area where some of the most extravagant shows of the superfluous took place. The iconic dishes of canvasback duck and Maryland terrapin, along with intricately garnished roasts to exquisitely executed pastries and sweets, demanded the services of that French chef that you just hired in Paris. In the Gilded Age, what you ate and how much it cost, along with where you ate it and how much that cost, defined one's social position. But the story of food in the Gilded Age was, in truth, more complex than just that. And for, well, the rest of us, much simpler than all that. New kitchen technologies like egg beaters and slicers, shredders and sieves, along with some canned foods, were helping much more modest home cooks prepare meals as social demands increased. My guest today, author and culinary historian Becky Liberell-Diamond, takes us on a tour and perhaps a progressive dinner party of sorts through the Gilded Age, from the dining rooms of the Astors to the dining cars of the new cross-country rail cars. From summer picnics to holiday dinners, we'll take a look at what mere mortal people ate and how, thanks to Becky's wonderfully created vintage recipes, how you can create it all in your home today. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every other week we delve into worlds light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens that is, it seems really liked a good meal. On December 5th, 1905, he was treated to a very special 70th birthday dinner at Delmonico's in New York, hosted by the editor of Harper's Weekly. Photos of that evening exist today and show a formally dressed Twain at his table accompanied by his wife, other gentlemen in white tie, and ladies in long, elegant gowns. 
Twain attended another lavish dinner in 1885 at Philadelphia's noted Clover Club, a private club for men who were interested in a jovial time and a really good meal. Twain's dinner at that particular evening included little neck clams, a consomme of summer vegetables, trout for the fish course with fried potatoes, and a saddle of lamb with classic mint sauce accompanied by sides of beets and peas. My guest today, Becky Diamond, in her just-published work, The Gilded Age Cookbook, recounts this particular dinner that Twain enjoyed, along with notes he made on some of his very favorite dishes, and just what appeared on many of the era's other gilded tables. Becky Diamond is a food writer and culinary historian. Her latest project is the Gilded Age Cookbook, and it's just been published by Globe Pequot, and it forms the basis for our talk today. Becky has two previous books of culinary history to her credit. The Thousand Dollar Dinner, published in 2015, tells the unique story of a 19th century Top Chef-style competition between Philadelphia restaurateur James Parkinson and the Delmonico family of New York. Becky is also the author of Mrs. Goodfellow, the story of America's first cooking school a successful 19th-century pastry chef who also ran an innovative cooking school for young women, a Philadelphia first. And it was through her work on the Delmonica Way by the wonderful Max Tucci, whom I had on the show back in December, that Becky and I got acquainted. And Becky, I am so honored to welcome you here today to The Gilded Gentleman. Thank you so much, Carl. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so glad you're here. We have a lot to talk about. Now, most people tend to think of the great dinner parties and the grand restaurant dinners of the Gilded Age, and we'll get to those. But there were an awful lot of people who didn't attend those. So I'd like to start off here with an idea of just what some of the more typical food was like during the Gilded Age for some of the other folks, some of us mortals, shall we say, right? So you begin your book with a really wonderful example to to show this. And you chose Mark Twain, which is so appropriate because in some ways he's responsible for coining the term Gilded Age from the title of his own book published in 1873, The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. But you give readers quite an extensive list of what Twain called his homesick food. Can you talk about what that was, how he came to make this list, and share a few examples of what was on his list? Sure. You know, Mark Twain was somebody who really enjoyed food. And I think all the traveling that he did over time really helped him become acquainted with all these foods that we had in America that were really coming about from all the different people that were coming over from different countries. And, you know, we always talk about us being a melting pot, and that's definitely true with the foods. And, you know, he had come back from a year touring Europe and really missed all the foods from his childhood and growing up in America. So he compiled this kind of bill of fare that when other people would travel to distant places, just to say this is what would welcome you when you would come home kind of thing. And, you know, there were so many different 
you know, reflections of these local delicacies, he really gets into detail about what some of these, you know, down to like exactly where like fish came from and just other like southern foods and what, you know, was a regional delicacy somewhere just very specific to America. Can you talk about a few of the dishes he has on his list that he missed? Yeah, I mean, it's funny how he talks about canvasback duck and, you know, things like brook trout from the Sierra Nevadas and Connecticut shad, which is funny. I'm from more the Philadelphia area. So I always think of Philadelphia as being the place where shad was popular and it was too. But, you know, that's just what's so neat that you find out, oh, there were other areas of the country where something might have been popular that I didn't realize. Baltimore perch, he talks about, Missouri partridges. Others are, you know, what we think of today as a definitely American type of food like apple pie, peach cobbler, steak, potatoes, fried chicken. I mean, if you read through this list, you just, you're starving at the end, basically. Yes, but it was what really struck me about it, with possibly the exception of the canvas back duck, and he does talk about terrapin, really two Gilded Age classics, but those were on very expensive dinner tables for the most part. So much of what he talks about is sort of down-home American food, and I love that. Right, and probably, you know, his time being a Mississippi riverboat captain, I'm sure, you know, he would make his way up and down the Mississippi, and I think he saw a lot of things that way and was able to try different foods. And then when he went out to Nevada, then he was able to try some of the Western food. So he really did get around, and then he ends up in Connecticut eventually, you know? So he he really did stretch throughout America and, and see all those different types of food. And to me, it's interesting to know that even at that point, how much we were really, how spread out we were as a country. I mean, we are obviously geographically, but also just how different people had went to different places and and populated areas of the country and realized this is what's local to this part of the country. And let's, you know, this is what's going to taste the best because it's fresh and local. And that well, that's what's so extraordinary about that list, too, because we think of the fancy food of the Gilded Age, but here's much more common food, but it also shows the regionality of America, which is which is really something that's unique, and these regional cuisines were really, really growing. And he documents that, so I thought the list, while it was fascinating of the actual dishes, but it says something about America overall, don't you think? Exactly, yes. I totally agree. So, it's very clear that most of the great amounts of money that fueled the Gilded Age came, of course, from the big fortunes that came from the country building its infrastructure and then, of course, investing in it. Now, food was one area that really changed dramatically as the result of the new technologies and the, the new resources that were coming on new ways to get food, new ways to move food, new ways to sell food. And the railroads, of course, were were perhaps responsible for the greatest amount of change in food. Now, you devote a lot of time early in the book to that, which I thought was brilliant and fascinating and really crucial. Can you talk about that influence? Sure. You know, yeah, the railroad, honestly, I always say that that's that's what built the Gilded Age, frankly, and, uh, you know, all those millionaire tycoons. But it also really allowed for the transport of goods, as you mentioned. And it helped connect cities and also as they were building things out, really move goods around. But also these cities were more connected now when the railroads were built out. And so they could 
transport foods that weren't available in an area previously and much faster than they could in the past, you know, like with just a stagecoach or some kind of, you know, just horseback, whatever. So it really it introduced people to a much wider range of foods. And then especially when they, you know, they tried um, a refrigerated rail car around 1842, but then it really wasn't until 1875 that this peach grower invented a refrigerated rail car. And that really changed the game because they could transport things that needed refrigeration and, you know, get them to people much quicker and safer. You know, there's a food safety issue as well. So dairy products, that sort of thing. There's a wonderful moment in one of the dinner scenes in Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence where Wharton, of course, is the master of details. And she refers to asparagus from Florida as being served at a dinner. And at first you think of that detail of why on earth is that big deal. But in the 1870s, asparagus from Florida was a very big deal, right? And it meant that it was expensive to get it. Absolutely. And just the fact, you know, it's funny, I learned a lot about that with my second book, The Thousand Dollar Dinner, because that meal had a whole course of vegetables, which sounds like today, what's the big deal? We can just go to the store and get whatever vegetable. But back then, if it was out of season, you had to have some kind of money to get that vegetable on other people's plates, whether it was the railroad or somebody had a greenhouse where you could grow something. So it definitely put things to the next level for sure. So my listeners, pay attention to vegetables in 19th century literature, right, is the lesson here. (laughs) Yeah. Now, now, along with the city's great advances overall as a result of all this industrial change, there was a lot going on in the home kitchen too. And, And I love that you address that because, gosh, I found some surprises there. Can you talk about some of those inventions and changes in the way food was actually prepared at home. Sure. I think, and one thing I always like to talk about when we're talking about historic food and and innovations is, and we take a lot of these things for granted now, but baking powder and baking soda, you know, those chemical leavenings really were game changers for things like cakes and biscuits and anything that you want to rise quickly. You know, it really helped create these huge layer cakes because in the past you would have to whip eggs to the you know sometimes like an hour or more you would whip eggs and they would make the servants do that unfortunately in order to produce these nice layer cakes so the other thing that was important was the rotary egg beater that also was something because once that came along you didn't have to whip things you know by hand for so long so not only eggs but like whipped cream that sort of thing. So those two were very important. Canned goods is another thing, again, we take for granted, but they were starting to become popular and that helped keep foods fresh. You could, again, transport things for greater distances. People who lived in the Midwest could have things that they wouldn't necessarily have had in the past. And then refrigeration is another huge thing. You know, the icebox was introduced in the early 1800s, but then that just kept improving over time. And once you could have a refrigerator in your house, well, an icebox, but it was much more helpful in putting together like these dinner parties or even just for the home, anybody in the home to have food readily readily available. I think it's a, a misconception. So many people think that all that came later in the 20th century, but it's really kind of surprising how much of this innovation took hold really in the Gilded Age and pretty quickly post-Civil War, right? Exactly. Yes. 
Now, one particular example I just love that you talk about is the role of chocolate. Now, who doesn't who doesn't love chocolate, right? But how that changed in the Gilded Age. And can you talk a little bit about that? How were people eating chocolate before and what happened? Yeah. And this is something I always love to talk about because people, again, we think chocolate is just everywhere today. And that's like the main sort of dessert. But chocolate was mainly a drinking beverage through most, well, the definitely the early part of the 19th century. And it was often served actually as an alternative to tea like it was it was at tea parties and you know they had a whole chocolate service in addition to the tea and coffee but it wasn't until improvements in cocoa processing took off so a man dutchman his name was van huten patented a way to um, process cacao beans and kind of take the fat pressing it out and then leaving this dry cocoa that remained. And once he did that, it paved the way for all sorts of chocolate desserts. And um, because you could do it in like a liquid form or the powder form, whatever. And it really, that's when chocolate ice cream came about. And I mean, it, it was available before, but it really just made it so much easier to make these chocolate goods. So, so again, thanks to technology yes. and technology of the last say, half to quarter of the 19th century resulted in chocolate becoming what we all love today, right? Exactly. I love that. Now, cookbooks were also on the rise. And and before we talk a little bit about some of the celebrity chefs that, that wrote them, can you talk about some of the cookbooks and cookbook writers that would have influenced early Gilded Age kitchens? Who there do we need to know about? Sure. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Eliza Leslie because she's she's one of my, one of my heroes and I've researched and written about her quite a bit. And, you know, she wrote a total of nine cookbooks between 1827 and 1857. So th- it, this was prior to the Gilded Age, but it really was her cookbooks were so popular and women everywhere would use them. Um, there's the quote, she taught generations of American women how to cook, behave themselves in public and clean their houses. So she uh, she did it all kind of thing. So she's one, you know, also these, there were several cooks that ran cooking schools. So those people too were really Oh, we're going to get to the cooking schools because yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah. So that's, you know, I would say, you know, people like Sarah Tyson Rohr and Maria Parloa, in addition to Eliza Leslie, those were the main ones, I think. Now, when you were talking about Eliza Leslie you, you, in describing what she did, I think you address a really fascinating point because we tend to think of cookbooks today as collections of recipes. But through a lot of the 19th century, and even really before that, cookbooks were more than that, right? They they were almost household manuals. Can you describe what a 19th century cookbook would have been like? Yep, exactly. You're exactly right that, you know, it was a manual guide to the household. And they even had recipes for the sick and, you know, how to mend if you had something that needed mending around the house. All that sort of thing was in a cookbook in addition to just, you know, knowing the basics of cooking as well. And also this part component of etiquette. That was a big thing. And Eliza Leslie had learned that from Mrs. Goodfellow, who I wrote about in my first book, who had who ran this cooking school and really taught 
women deportment and, um, you know, like I said, etiquette and how to behave like a like a lady and give dinner parties and all of that sort of thing. You know, these women who were the ones attending cooking schools often had to then tell their servants how to make the dishes because the servants, unfortunately, couldn't always read the cookbooks themselves. So there was that component of it, too. They were instruction manuals. Now, do you think it's fair to say that at this point, meaning throughout a lot of the 19th century, there was still a heavy British influence on food coming over. Do you do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I think there still was. There was definitely the French influence was becoming more popular, but I think a lot of these women had British somewhere in their backgrounds or their families, and that definitely goes, you know, for Eliza Leslie and Mrs. Goodfellow, both of them. And I think that, you know, there was that influence on their cooking, a lot of puddings and, you know, foods that would have been what we think of as British in in origin. So And the old boiled or roasted meat, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Becky and I are going to take a brief break, and we'll be back to continue our look at Gilded Age food. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I am talking food with cookbook author Becky Diamond, whose new book, The Gilded Age Cookbook, has just been published. Now, the recipes in your book share an incredibly wide variety. There are some very elegant dishes. Um, But also the origins of some of the more familiar dishes are things that you bring to readers, which I just love. So I'd love you to talk about a couple of those. I was really struck by your story about lemon meringue pie. So I'd love you to talk about that, as well as a wonderful recipe that you include from your very own family from the Gilded Age, which is pineapple cake and why that was important. So can you talk about those two for listeners? Sure. So the lemon meringue pie... You know, I really found out the origins of this when I wrote the book about Mrs. Goodfellow because it was one of her creations. So she had this rich lemon pudding that was a signature pudding and that at some point she thought to top it with meringue. You know, 
when you make a lemon pudding, it was egg yolks. Well, you have egg whites left over. Why not make a meringue out of it? And that's really how it came about. And as we know, it's just such a great combination of the sweet tart lemon and then with the the meringue on top. It's just a delicious combination. So we have Mrs. Goodfellow to thank for that. And thank her we do. Yes. Now the pineapple cake. Yeah, so... And I was just talking to my mother about this a little bit more because, you know, it's from her family. And so her Aunt Lizzie was my grandfather's aunt. And she would have been a maiden name Ellsworth. So they came from from England, the British Isles. And I think really the origins of this, and it's a pineapple pie, I think it's because, like I've said before, the canned goods were becoming so much more available and popular. So prior to that, they wouldn't really have had like fresh pineapple available to them, but you could get it canned. And that's what this recipe calls for. And it's just delicious, just like the lemon meringue. It tops it with that meringue topping. And what what doesn't taste good <laughs> topped with meringue? So, yeah. But the pineapple was such an important fruit. You read 18th century stories about this because they were hard to get. Yes. Right? And so, and of course, the pineapple became the symbol of hospitality. So even though, my guess is that even if you were still using, if you were using canned pineapple, that still had a connotation of, wow, this is an elegant, special dessert. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I agree with you. And I, again, it's just because it was, it was a special fruit to have. And hey, now we can get it in this format. And it just tastes just as good as it does, you know, when we're getting it fresh, because it would keep well and, and all of that. Now, Oysters. We cannot do a Gilded Age food show without talking about oysters. Now, oysters, see, you could probably call them the staple food of New York City, certainly throughout a lot of the 19th century. So why was that? Why does it seem that oysters crop up on almost every Gilded Age dinner menu at least on the East Coast. What was the story with oysters? Yeah, I mean, oysters kicked off every meal. I think they were so plentiful at one point and popular that, yeah, they were on fine dining tables, but yet they were street food as well. It's really interesting. Not many foods can say that. (laughs) But also I think, and I've done a lot of research on this, that depending on what part of the country you're from, like if it's a coastal city, we all think our oysters are the best kind of thing. And I learned this again doing the research for my second book because in that Philadelphia is going up against New York. And so Philadelphia said our oysters are the best from Morris River Cove, which is down by Cape May. And New York's like, no, no, you know, Blue Point oysters are the best. And if the oysters are from a region that's warmer, they're going to be larger. And then if they're from a region that's further north, they're going to be smaller and brinier. And everyone had a different, you know, idea of what the best tasting oyster would be. But MFK Fisher said that Blue Points were the best. So Well, I would believe anything MFK Fisher mm-hmm. said. Right? And there were these wonderful stories of these British and European travelers that would come to America in the early part of the 19th century, and they would see these enormous oysters because they were used to these much smaller things that they would get, what, in the North Sea or in, in Europe. And, and there were some pretty funny descriptions of how big they well, yes, supposedly ex- were. Yeah, exactly. I think all the food that they encountered, they were shocked, like the size of the game birds and just a lot of the fish and turtle and everything. Yeah. The other bit of that I just love are you when you read these 
recountings from from travelers about how fast New Yorkers eat. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're in a hurry. So, you know. Things now, when do. I went through some vintage menus and some archival materials, I was just struck by the passion of Gilded Age diners at every level for ice cream. And you mentioned it earlier when you were talking about chocolate, some of the fanciest and grandest dinners and most expensive dinners on the Astor's tables and Vanderbilt's, they all ended with ice cream. So can you talk about this fascination? Why was ice cream so popular? Sure. Well, you know, by the Gilded Age, ice cream and other frozen treats were becoming more reasonably priced and readily available. But you still had to be somebody of means in order to serve that in your home, because that meant that you had to have access to the, you know, a decent refrigeration process. And I think that's like a big part of it. It just showed that you had the wealth and means to serve ice cream in your home. Because most of the time, people were eating ice cream at one of those pleasure gardens that were outside or an ice cream parlor. But to serve it in your home meant that you had some kind of access to refrigeration. And also, they would often serve them in those little molds, like whether they were tin, copper, whatever. But when then when you would then unmold the ice cream, it was like this fanciful shapes. And, you know, I think it was just another way to bring it up a notch and say this is an elegant way to eat this ice cream. That's one thing I find fascinating about the Victorian world, certainly in Britain and and I'm sure here in America during the Gilded Age. They were fascinated by molds. Yes. They loved molding food. Is that true? Yes, definitely. Uh, Any kind of cold dishes, you know, the gelatin ones that... When we talk about the balls and, and banquet dinners later, I mean, that's definitely they they loved to be showy in that way. And took every opportunity to do it right, even with food. Yes. Now, one question that listeners and lecture attendees always ask me, and I never have a good answer for this. So I'm so anxious to ask you so we can collaborate here. What about leftovers? It seems that this is just an incredibly elusive subject, whether it was on more modest family tables or certainly the grand banquets. Have you uncovered any insight into what happened to food that was not eaten at the table? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Again, we go it goes back to Eliza Leslie because she has several instances in her cookbooks about what you can do with leftovers. A lot of times it's pudding. She has a pork with peas pudding that, you know, after you boil it in the pudding cloth and serve it one day, Then the next day, she says, you can boil the pork and pudding again. So basically just reheating it. You know, we don't have, (laughs) they didn't have microwaves or some other way of reheating. So they would just reboil it again and and then cut it into slices. They would often serve it for breakfast the next day, a lot of foods. She mentions a roast veal that's already cooked. And then you can hash it kind of, I guess, like a corned beef hash, you know, the next day for breakfast. Even a fancy Madeira ham, she mentions, you know, you make that with this for a fancy dinner party, but then the next day you can cut it into small pieces and kind of stew it with a sauce over top and have it, you know, for a later time. So that's fascinating. So do you think it's fair to say that some of these cookbook writers were really starting to look 
at food with an eye towards economy and reusing some of these dishes that weren't eaten? I do, you know, and there were a lot of cookbook writers that even though they wrote about these fine dinners, they I think they realized that, you know, why should we let food go to waste? And eggs were a big thing, too. Like, you know, like I was saying, the lemon pudding, you know, if you're using just egg whites or just egg yolks, you don't want to let those go to waste, you know, the uh, so f- what can we do with leftover egg whites, make meringue out of it, you know, sort of thing. So, you know, I had asked uh, another guest several shows ago about, well, what did you do in a big restaurant when you had these grand meals and grand dinners and grand dishes? And her answer was, well, you make a brunch menu, which is funny because that's what restaurants do is they, yeah. they take ingredients that they do need to use and all of a sudden you have a special, right? So yeah. maybe that's not such a new practice. Absolutely. No, I I agree. I think I think that's you know, cooks have always been smart, right? So Absolutely. <laughs> they right? need to know what to do. So now let's go to a few of the grander dinners, maybe a midnight ball supper at the Vanderbilts or a dinner party thrown by Caroline Astor. Can you talk a little bit about how these dinners would actually have been served and what sorts of dishes we might find on those tables? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, as you can imagine, the food was just bountiful. And I don't know about you, Carl, I was going to ask you, I sometimes I think that people might not have necessarily eaten that much at these kind of parties. I think it was all about, again, being showy and the food. The food sometimes wasn't even really edible. Like I, you know, for example, you you talk about the the Vanderbilts. I love that Mrs. Cornelius Vanderbilt's 1888 ball. And it was just so over the top. And she had like real fish and tadpoles swimming in a stream kind of thing. And then all these molded dishes to be like one was the god of, you know, Mercury pulling a chariot and fit. And it's just such showy, like those molded dishes, like you said. So I don't know how much real eating was going on. And, you know, those would have been like on a side or buffet table. And then maybe at midnight or one, she would have served another like dinner part. But I, you know, I I do feel like it was a lot for show. I completely agree with you. And, And when I'm asked that question, I always go back to think about what you had to wear. And particularly if you're a woman, you are strapped into a corset. You have yards and yards of heavy, uncomfortable silk and satin. Maybe you're wearing a wrap. You've got gloves. You've got all of this. There is no way that you're going to be able to really tuck in to a meal. You know, maybe you can manage a couple of spoonfuls of the soup or a bite of this. I mean, gentlemen had it probably easier, which is deeply unfair. But so I I agree with you. I think that these grand dinners and ball suppers and all this thing, I think it's we have to get a little real here, right? And realize that you probably couldn't eat a yeah, lot. Yeah, and I've thought of exactly what you just said about what women would have been wearing. Also, you're you're socializing, right? So you're taught. I mean, we all know if we go to an event, like I know for me, I have to be careful sometimes that I don't drink too much because I'm not eating enough at right. one of those things. And it's just so I'm sure a lot of that was going on. They were dancing, 
you know, and just socializing with each other. So I don't know how well, much Well, and eating. let's be real here. If you were a society mother at that point going to one of these things, this was about marrying off your daughter, right? right? I mean, this was about finding the right match for her daughter. So it was not about yep. <laughs> so You're much You're skulking about, around, right, looking, you right, know, around. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a, it sort of leads to another perception that I have, and I'd love to know if you agree with this, is, again, this was not a culture of great gastronomes and great gourmands and people that loved food. You had the food because it was expensive, because it was showy, and you wanted everyone to know that. Do you agree with that? Exactly. I totally agree. Yeah. And I've heard you say that on some other podcast. And whenever I hear you say, I'm like, I, I totally, I'm, I'm there with well, you. Well, <laughs> the French were different. If you were in France, that was very much a culture of, right, of gastronomy. Knew, and it yes. was a whole different thing. But America, we were a little, yeah. yeah. Now, one dessert that really fascinated me that you write about and talk about is the Charlotte Russe. Can you talk about what that was sounds very elegant and uh, what its history was and and why it intrigued you sure yeah i mean it's they're delicious i love charlotte russe but um charlotte desserts originated in england around the end of the 18th century and it's basically they're either um, like a sponge cake or even bread placed in the bottom of a mold like lining the mold and then you pour some kind of pudding over that or you know something to kind of soak that up and then it can have fruit in it and it was on, in honor of queen charlotte that's what a charlotte was named after, but then the French chef Creme thought, well, I want to take that one step further. And um, he came up with the Charlotte Russe, which he named it after Russian Tsar Alexander I. And that was, again, it's like lady fingers lining the mold, and then it's like a rich Bavarian cream, and then often has strawberries and, and then topped with more whipped cream. So really delicious. Oh, sounds very elegant. Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful, really beautiful dish. And we can make it at home now, thanks to you. Yeah, yeah. And it's really not hard because then, you know, most people just buy the lady fingers already packaged up and it's just putting together the components, kind of like um, like a trifle sort of thing, you know. A trifle and dish. this brings up another interesting point about a lot of food in the Gilded Age, that it was often dishes were often named for somebody yes. or something. Am I correct about that? Yep. That was a really important thing, especially in that 19th century to name a dish after somebody, you know, the Delmonico's has several, you know, with the eggs Benedict and, and such. So, yeah. Well, it seems like there was a lot of stuff named for Queen Victoria. You couldn't really yeah, get past a dinner without yeah. something named for Queen Victoria. We don't know necessarily what they all are today, but right. she had a lot of things named for her. Now, Becky, one of the most famous aspects of the evolution of food in the Gilded Age was, of course, the rise of the restaurant scene, led, of course, by the famous Delmonico's. Now, I've done shows on Delmonico's, but there certainly were others. And one of the great competitors to Delmonico's was Sherry's. So can you talk a little bit about Louis Sherry, who he was, how he got in the Gilded Age restaurant steaks and what he brought to the food scene. Yeah, so Louis Sherry was really a smart and savvy entrepreneur. He had his finger on the pulse of the Gilded Age, like and knowing what the needs were of these really high society and wealthy people. And he really absorbed every detail as he made his way up the restaurant ladder. And eventually um, he opened Sherry's in around 1890 and directly across from Delmonico's. He knew that that Delmonico's was his competitor and he had a ballroom, dining room, put together all kinds of 
balls and suppers privately and and also had, you know, the restaurant that was open. But the Astors were among his really regular customers. And it was rumored that he was actually backed by the Astors funding, although he maintained that he climbed the ladder to success by giving people the novelties that my competitors neglected. So, you know, take that as you may. But, you know, he he definitely made his way up to the top. Well, I think he was a great marketer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, I think, one of the secrets of of his success. And I also, I tend to think of Lewis Sherry, and you could argue this, I suppose, as New York's first great celebrity caterer. Yeah. You know, he actually would come to your mansion and bring the waiters and even table settings and, and serve a meal at your house. Right. Yeah. And I, again, I think he just, he knew what people wanted and was, he watched, right? He watched and said, okay, this is what the trend is going to be. Like he was ahead of the times kind of thing, ahead of the game and and knowing what he should be having next in his restaurant. And I think that's the secret of any great entrepreneur. It's not what's happening now. It's what's right. going to happen, right? Exactly. Now, I did a show on uh, Charles Ranhofer, the great uh, chef of Delmonico's, but I want to talk about another one that you talk about in your book, and that's Oscar Cherky at the Waldorf. Did he really invent the Waldorf salad? Can you talk about Oscar and set the record straight about that salad? Yes, he did. He he really did. He had this 1896 cookbook, which was called The Cookbook, which is just kind of funny that that's which is the cookbook by Oscar of the Waldorf. And the original recipe was just diced apples and celery dressed with a good mayonnaise. So, I mean, you know, I think later on the chopped walnuts were added. You could also serve them in apple cups kind of thing, which I mentioned in the cookbook as a way, like a presentation. But he really, he was known for devising these signature recipe recipes for the Waldorf. And that's probably the best known one that really made its way, you know, throughout time. See, it seems like nothing has changed, Becky. If you're a celebrity chef with a great restaurant, you, you have to do a book, right? Nothing's changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Becky and I are going to take a brief break and we'll be back to continue our look at Gilded Age food. It's that time again. Time to start thinking taxes. But this tax smart move for 2023 could make it less painful. Open and fund a Fidelity IRA before the tax deadline. You could reduce your taxable income in a traditional IRA or get tax-free withdrawals in retirement with a Roth IRA. Plus, there are no account fees or minimums to open an account. Get started at fidelity.com slash IRA. No account fees or minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 
And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I am talking food with cookbook author Becky Diamond, whose new book, The Gilded Age Cookbook, has just been published. Now, one aspect of your book that I found really fascinating, and we've alluded to this a little bit, you've talked a little bit about it earlier, which could be a whole other book, was this notion of the rise of cooking schools in America during the Gilded Age. I think this is so important. I always tend to think of Fanny Farmer and the Boston Cooking School, but that's because I'm from New England. But there but there were others. And can you talk a little bit about what this was, what accounted for this rise, and what was significant about it? Sure. Well, you know, we think today— if you're going to a cooking school like the Culinary Institute of America, you're going to be a chef or maybe do something with the food industry. But back then, they weren't, that wasn't the pathway. It was women attended these cooking schools because their mothers insisted that they go and, and learn about how to put on a dinner party, how to make pastries, how to put, you know, these fine dinners together. And as I mentioned before, a lot of times, they wouldn't be the ones putting them on. It would be, or you know, they wouldn't be the ones cooking. It would be for them to tell their servants how to put together the food because the servants couldn't read the cookbooks themselves. So having this extra layer of instruction then just helps seal for these women to know what to do, you know, when when you're hosting something. And I think during the Gilded Age, it really began to evolve and expand. There was this French chef, Pierre Blot, who came in 1855 to New York, and he set up his own cooking school because he realized, you know, French cooking was becoming much more popular and women wanted that in their households. So a lot of them would hire French chefs you know, to have in their homes. But then he thought, well, why can't I give them a little education at the same time? So he had, he he designated himself the professor of gastronomy, which I think is hilarious. But he really did become so popular throughout New York and even further than that, because he kind of took his little school on the road a couple of times. He went up to Boston and other areas and was really teaching educating the American public about how to cook French foods. And then it just kind of escalated from there. These other, he had a protege, Juliet Corson, who had the New York, she had cooked at the New York Cooking School and taught. And so it just, that model just proliferated. And really, I always say through the time of World War II, it was the GI Bill that gave men coming back from the war an opportunity to go to culinary school. And before that, it really, it wasn't that model we think of today where chefs, you know, were, were learning in a culinary school. No, I think it's really interesting. So cu- cooking schools at this point were really about training home cooks. Yes. If you wanted to go into the restaurant world at this time, you simply apprenticed, right? Yes, you, went, so you would apprentice. Yeah, you went and just got a job at the lowest rungs of a restaurant mm-hmm. or a hotel dining room and worked your way up. It was not a question of going to school the way it is today. Right, exactly. Now, we are just about to head into the holiday and the entertaining season. Thanksgiving is coming up very soon. Abraham Lincoln proclaimed it a national holiday in 1863. So, Becky, can you talk a little bit about how Gilded Age families of whatever level you choose to to share might have celebrated Thanksgiving in the Gilded Age? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, the celebrations were maybe a little more sophisticated than we would think of today, you know, with our Thanksgivings. Definitely an emphasis on decor and elegance. Just like today, though, they like the harvest theme decorations. The the tables would be really decked out with floral arrangements, cornucopias, that sort of thing. And the preparation, just like today, was done you know, weeks in advance, Um, you know, the planning and they could make some of their puddings ahead of time and and other dishes like that. Women's magazines from the time would recommend if you're going to try something new to, you know, try it at home, you know, make a small amount first so that you're not doing it for the first time. And I also say a lot of times in the Gilded Age, a Thanksgiving dinner was a multi-course meal because Dining a la Russe was becoming popular at the time. So, you know, dining in courses and that carried over to Thanksgiving as well. So they would often start out with um, oyster soup or bouillon or something and then move into the roast turkey stuffing, cranberry jelly like we think of. But then they would have even another course of chicken pie, corn, potatoes, and then the desserts were often in two parts as well. So it really was a hugely drawn out occasion And then also I thought it was interesting that they actually, for once, gave children their own little kind of plate, you know, because children were supposed to be seen and not heard. But they gave them, like they considered them, they gave them their own like table and had their own little meal. And often the older children were kind of responsible for the younger ones. But they weren't just kind of thrown aside, like they were given this special little area, which I thought was was interesting. The the evolution of the modern children's table, right, that we see today. So, Becky, if listeners would like to include Include a dish or two from your cookbook for either their Thanksgiving coming up or their holiday tables this year, what would you recommend? Well, I have to say the turkey that I include in there is so interesting. It's from an 1885 Godey's Ladies article, and it's basted with tomatoes. So again, the can, and it was canned tomatoes. So I think they were really excited to to use these canned goods. I mean, now we, we don't think of them that way, but it's just a really interesting way to make a turkey. So I, w- I would recommend trying that. And then um, the pumpkin cake that I have in there, it's it's a nice change from the pumpkin pie. And that's actually, a, it was a family recipe as well. And it's frosted with like a maple frosting with walnuts. It's really good. Now, I'm so interested in your own process in creating This book. Now, Food in the Gilded Age, really, as I think we've certainly given an intimation today, is really such a huge subject. And your book is really the first Gilded Age cookbook for modern times. So I'm so excited that you've done this. Now, you obviously had to sift through so many different recipes that were written in the 19th century. And as we've said a number of times, so many things were different. Ingredients were different. Processes were certainly different. Sometimes there was no method at all given in some of these recipes. How did you go about translating some of these old recipes for modern kitchens. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, reconstructing these recipes really requires tweaking of the ingredients and and measurements, especially like eggs were much smaller then. So if you see a cake, it'll often say, oh, 12 eggs. Well, we're doing it today. We're not going to include, I mean, the more eggs in in a cake, the better, (laughs) really makes it richer. But at the same time, you know, you have to really look and see two eggs back then would be almost equal to one today. So you have to really... It's a trial and error process, which is fun, you know, especially with the measurements and everything. But what I like to do is I, I go back to a recipe that I'm, I want to construct, reconstruct, 
And then I look, I go forward in time. And it's really helpful that places like Google Books now have all these old cookbooks scanned into them. You know, I go to go through manuscript cookbooks as well as historical ones. And I just see how has it changed over time up until the modern day. And there might not necessarily be the same modern recipe, but there's enough similarities that I can find kind of that it's like a, a map to me, like how it's it's evolved. So is there one particular dish from the Gilded Age that either due to the ingredients or the process would just be impossible to recreate authentically today? Is there one that you would just love to taste and what would it be? Well, I think some of them that would be, and I always talk about it, you can't really recreate them because they're endangered now is like the turtle, you know, the, the, the sea turtle. The fact that there used to be salmon swimming like in the Delaware and Schuylkill rivers, that's, you know, unusual. But for me, and I always say I would love, believe it or not, to try the wines from back then and compare them to the wines of today because it was before the phylloxera Laos took over the rootstocks of you know, the, it really decimated the French wines. So I would love to be able to taste the wines that were from before that time because they're supposed to be the whites were darker and sweeter, the reds were lighter and uh, more tannic. So that would be probably my first thing. And also maybe some, you know, like to see if the fruits and vegetables really taste differently, like because we have some of the heirloom varieties, but I feel like much of the produce today is so homogenized they make it has to be all the same so they can ship it. I would have loved to have tasted some of those, you know, more regional types of local foods and such. I think you bring up a really interesting point because as food historians, we spend a lot of time talking about the food and and how it was created. But when you get down to taste, ingredients did taste differently then for a whole number of of reasons. And you mentioned the wine. I think that's a really fascinating aspect that listeners today might not realize that wines tasted differently. Yeah, and I would love to just compare one of those to a modern wine and see what the differences would be. So I certainly encourage listeners to uh, check out both of Becky's earlier books, and I very much encourage my listeners to buy a copy of Becky's brand new book, The Gilded Age Cookbook. I hope we have made you hungry and fascinated in this particular period of history, and I hope everyone will have a little bit of The Gilded Age this holiday season on their tables. And Becky, perhaps, just perhaps, would you come back on The Gilded Gentleman for more culinary chats on The Gilded Age? Absolutely. I'd love to. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful. Now I really am hungry. I think we need to go have lunch, right? (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you so much. And to my listeners, don't miss the other episodes of The Gilded Gentleman in which we delve into the food of The Gilded Age, episode 11 with my guest culinary director Victoria Granoff, How to Pluck a Peacock, Delmonico's Charles Ranhofer and the Epicurean, and episode 16, Golden Plates and Dinners on Horseback, Tales of Dining in Gilded Age, New York, and of course, my show with Max Tucci, The Delmonico Way, celebrating his book, the very book that connected Becky and me. So thank you so much for joining me today for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media 
Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite my listeners to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support directly helps with all of the costs of creating the show from research to studio rentals. I couldn't do it without you. An enormous thank you to my patrons. And I'll see you soon. What's life without a little glint of gold? Your entire life you've been told to save, but has anyone helped you figure out how to spend? With Fidelity Income Planning, get help creating a personalized plan for cash flow, even when you're not working. One that includes your 401k and all your other accounts. Make informed decisions that best fit your life ahead, whether one-on-one or through our planning tools. Learn more at fidelity.com slash income planning. Advisory services provided by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC for a fee. Brokerage services by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. 